Okay, Genesis chapter 49 this morning. Excuse me. Genesis 49, and let's begin reading from verse 5. Genesis 49, verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honour, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. And let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Holy Father, we... Thank you once more that we can come this morning and that we can uh, spend some time as a body of believers. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your wonderful word you've given unto us. We thank you for the wonderful truths contained therein. We pray, Lord, this morning as we consider this passage, that, Lord, you would open our eyes to your truth, uh, that, Lord, you would uh, give us understanding of your word, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, and may we Indeed, Lord, this morning, uh, see you and give glory and honour to your name. Lord, empower me now through the Spirit. Give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we saw last time that uh, Genesis chapter 49 uh, contains for us uh, um, Jacob's final words of blessing and benediction unto his 12 sons. Uh, But what he has to say unto them here is more than just Uh, his last wishes, if if you like, his dying wishes. The words given to us here are prophetic words concerning each of them and the tribe that will bear their name. And we see that there in verse 1 where it says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And so he calls them together to give these words unto them concerning the last days, concerning things yet future both near and far. Uh, You know, it's a prophecy that spans a great distance of time. And we saw last time that he begins by speaking to Reuben, who, of course, is his firstborn son, his eldest. And Reuben was born into a position of uh, honour, a position of privilege, but he lost it all because he was unstable as water. We saw it there in verse Three, it says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the excellency of my strength, the ex- uh, sorry, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. And so he talks about the fact that Reuben is unstable as water, and we, we saw this talked about his lack of moral restraints. Uh, He allowed his passions to control him, and it resulted in him committing great wickedness. He went in unto his father's concubine, Bilhah, committing wickedness with her. And this is a sin that, of course, left left a a blot, if you like, upon his character. It was a public sin that destroyed his reputation. And as a result, he lost his privilege and honor that should have been his. You know, Joseph was given the birthright. And Judah was given the rank and the authority of the firstborn. We also saw that because of his lack of moral restraint, 
the tribe bearing his name would not excel. That was the prophecy given there in verse 4 where it says, Unstable is water, thou shalt not excel. So Reuben himself wouldn't excel and nor would the tribe bearing his name. And this morning now we, we come to the next two sons and we see that Reuben is not alone in being a disappointment unto his father. The next two elder sons, Simeon and Levi, were also a source of great uh, grief and shame unto Jacob. And notice when we firstly hear this morning, we see their character. Their character. Look in verse 5. It says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Verse 5 begins with the words, Simeon and Levi are brethren or are brothers. Now, this is a statement that means more than just that they are physical brothers. And that should be obvious because they're all brothers. Okay, all 12 of them are brothers, at least stepbrothers. They're all related in some way, half-brothers, sorry. They're all at least related in some way. And so this statement here, Simeon and Levi are brothers, is speaking about more than just the fact that they're physical brothers. This speaks of the fact that they shared the same character. They shared the same disposition. They were similar to one another. Butler writes this, grouping together Simeon and Levi is appropriate because they are brethren, not only in the sense of flesh, but also in the sense of mind and disposition. They were both on the same evil track and tuned to the same evil frequency. It was an evil twosome which Jacob addressed in this part of his patriarchal benedictions. The two of them went together. They were both on the same evil track. They both had the same evil bent to their nature. They shared an evil character. And the second half of verse 5 uh, tells us what it was that was evil about their character. Okay, verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Jacob says instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. And this phrase here tells us what it was that was evil about their character. Now, the meaning of this phrase is not exactly straightforward, uh, but we'll endeavor this morning to give uh, the best sense of what Jacob is trying to say here. The first two words of the phrase are, are very, very easy to understand. <clears throat> instruments of, <clears throat> excuse me, instruments of cruelty. It's two words in the Hebrew. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me get a drink. It's two words in the Hebrew. And the first word, instruments, pretty simple. Strong's concordance says instruments speaks of something prepared, that is, any apparatus as an implement, utensil, dress, vessel, or weapon. And so the first word speaks of anything that you can use, an implement that you use in your hands, a weapon, something like that. Um, and in particular here, we're told that this implement, this instrument, is an in instrument or implement of cruelty. And that word cruelty there means violence. Okay, so it's weapons of violence. Okay, if you want to translate that first part of the phrase simply. Okay, uh, that's what it means, weapons of violence. And so the first part is simple enough. The difficulty comes with the second half of the phrase, are in their habitations. Now, the words are in are not there in the original. Okay? You can see they're in italics, so they're added by the translators to help give the sense of the verse. 
And so they're not in the original. It's actually only one word, which the translators here have, have given us as their habitations. Okay, that's the one Hebrew word here. And it's this word that causes all the difficulty. This word translated their habitations here is only found here in the scriptures. It's found nowhere else. It's only found here in this passage. And the meaning of the word is uncertain. No one can agree on what the word actually means. And I read extensively this week. I read basically every commentator I could find. Anyone who would give me a concise and definite answer. And the the truth is there is no definite answer as to the meaning of the word. You know, the King King James translators have given us the word habitations, but that doesn't seem to be the meaning of the word at all. And so that added to all the confusion as I was studying this week. But there are two opinions among the scholars. These are the two that stand out among the scholars, among all the reading I did this week, as to the meaning of this word. Some believe that this word comes from a root word that means contracts or agreements. And so the phrase here would be, weapons of violence are their agreements. Weapons of violence are their agreements or are their contracts. And this translation suggests a reference to the agreement that they made with the Shechemites, okay, which they did use as a weapon of violence. Okay, and we will see that later on. Uh, in verse 6, we'll talk about that in a moment. Okay? So they did use their agreement as a weapon of violence. And so that translation does make sense. Others believe the Hebrew word comes from a root word that means sword or knife. Totally different. Not even closely related. And so the phrase would then be weapons of violence are their swords. And this translation suggests to us that they use their swords for cruelty, okay, for violence. Rather than using it for self-defense, they went on the offensive and they liked to use their swords. They had a violent nature. Um, One commentator wrote this, Their swords, which they should have used in defense of their persons or the honorable protection of their families, they have employed in violence and cruelty and so this is the other side of the coin you have some that say it means weapons of violence are their agreements they use their agreement as a vehicle to carry out violence and then you have others who say it means weapons of violence are their swords and it's talking about their violent nature their cruelty and while both translations have merit it's the second translation that i believe best fits the passage And indeed, as I was reading this week, if you wanted to take a tally of all the commentators, the majority went this way. And when I say majority, it wasn't by much. Okay, they were they were pretty evenly split. Majority did go down on this side that it means weapons of cruelty are their swords. And I believe that it best fits the passage, it best describes for us what it was that was evil about their nature. You see, these two brothers lived by the sword that's basically what jacob is saying here they lived by the sword they used the sword to settle any disagreements they had they were violent they were vengeful individuals who were known for allowing their anger to get the better of them and it resulted in them lashing out against others with great cruelty and violence and the start of verse 7 supports this position The start of verse 7, we read this, 
Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Start of verse 7, Jacob curses their anger and wrath, and he curses it. Why? Because it's fierce and it was cruel. And it supports this idea that the, the problem with their evil, their, their nature, sorry, was that they had a violent nature. Okay? They were violent individuals that were led by their anger, by their temper, into cruelty towards others. It was anger out of control. You know, Reuben, as we saw last time, he was known for his lack of moral restraints. But Simeon and Levi, they were known for their inability to control their temper, their violent nature. And in verse 6, Jacob now points to one uh, particular occasion when this violent nature was clearly seen, this loss of control, them going out of control and going too far. And so we see, secondly, now their wickedness. Here in verse 6, their wickedness. In verse 6 it says, O my soul, come not thou into thy, their secrets. Unto their assembly, mine honour, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. There was one instance that clearly stood out, that clearly demonstrated their violent, vengeful disposition above all others. And that was their treatment of the Shechemites. And it's alluded to here with the words at the end of verse 6, For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. This is a phrase here where Jacob is alluding back to this occasion, back in Genesis chapter 34. So let's go back there, Genesis 34, and remind ourselves of the events. Um, and if you weren't here when we preached in Genesis 34, understand the events. Of Genesis 34. But in Genesis 34, we, we have this story about Dinah, okay, who is the sister of Simeon and Levi and of the other brothers. Dinah being uh, defiled by one of the men uh, of the Shechemites, okay, Shechem. Uh, let's just read from verse 1 in chapter 34. It says, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And he sold clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard <clears throat> that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field. And Jacob held his peace until they were come. So in the first five verses here, we... We see that Dinah, she's foolishly gotten to know the daughters of the land. She's been going out and hanging out with these worldly young women. She's been getting to know them. She's developed friendships with them. And as she's been going to town and spending time with these friends, she's caught the eye of this young man there in the city, this man Shechem, who is the prince of the country. She's caught his eye and they develop a relationship together. They develop a friendship. They get to know one another. And they become closer and closer and they end up in a compromising situation. They have a physical relationship outside the bounds of marriage. And when we looked at chapter 34, we saw that this is not rape as some have suggested. It seems very clear from the passage and from everything that happens that this was two young people who allowed their flesh to control them and they defiled themselves committing this act of sin. They found themselves in 
sin and a sinful relationship. And Shechem, he immediately seeks to do the honourable thing. He immediately seeks to take Dinah as his wife. Let's just read from verse 6. It says, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you, dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what you shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. So we see Shechem and his father Hamel, they come. They come out to meet with Jacob and with the brothers. And they're seeking to do the honourable thing. They're seeking to make a marriage arrangement now between the two young people. Okay, Shechem professes clearly his love for Dinah. He does actually care about her. He wants to make things right. He wants to marry Dinah and spend his life with her. And they're hoping also that this marriage arrangement might even be the foundation of a future peace agreement between the two peoples, between the two groups. But of course, Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi in particular, they are filled with anger and wrath when they learn that, her, that their sister has lost her honour. She's been defiled. And all they can think about as Shechem and his father are making this proposal, all they can think about is getting revenge. Okay, remember their violent nature, their anger. The anger's boiling up within and all they can think about is revenge. And so they come up with a deceitful plan. Let's just read it, verse 13. It says, And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled, <coughs> sorry, defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. And so here we see their deceitful plan. You know, they basically say to Shechem and his father, they say, well, we can't agree to this unless you are circumcised like we are. And the whole city, they need to be circumcised as well. All the males need to be circumcised. And if you do this, then we will, you know, we'll join together. We'll give our daughters to you and you give your daughters to us and we'll have this unity in marriage between the two groups. You know, they never had any intention of honouring this agreement. This was all deceit. This was a plan designed to put the men of the city in a vulnerable state so that they then could carry out their bloodthirsty vengeance. And we see that there in verse 24. It says, And under Hamor and under Shechem, his son, Hearken all that went out of the gate of his city, and every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword, and came upon the city boldly, and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor, 
and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. Now here we see what it was all about. They wanted them vulnerable. And so on the third day when all the men of the city are sore and they're unable to defend themselves, they came up upon the city with their swords and they slaughtered all the males of the city. They committed mass murder. And it's this event that Jacob is alluding to here and referring to here in chapter 49 when he says, For in their anger they slew a man, or they slew man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. For in their anger they slew man. The word man there is used referring to all the men of the city, not just Shechem. Okay, one commentator wrote this, Shechem together with all the males of the city, and so man may be put for men. The singular for the plural as is frequent. Apparently it's frequently used right throughout the Old Testament. You'll find that the Hebrew word for man is used in place of the plural. It's used all the time to speak about man collectively. And that's the case here. Okay, this singular man is talking about the city. It's talking about all the men. Okay, so for in their anger they slew man collectively. They slaughtered the entire city while they were defenseless. But their wickedness went even further than that. Jacob adds, he says, in their self-will, they digged down a wall. The word translated self-will here speaks of pleasure. It speaks of delight. And so in their delight, in their pleasure, they digged down a wall. The idea is they took pleasure in the destruction that they brought upon the city of Shechem. Not only in slaughtering the males of the city, they enjoyed it. They took pleasure in their violence but also in digging down the wall. In other words, laying waste to the city. This was wanton destruction of property. They enjoyed it. They took pleasure in it, in destroying this city. Simeon and Levi enjoyed using their sword as a weapon of violence towards the city and carrying out this act. They enjoyed it, and indeed they believed they were completely justified in their actions. At the end of chapter 34 and verse 31, their response to Jacob when he rebuked them was this. They said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? In other words, they said to their father, they said, what did you want us to do? Nothing. They felt they were justified. They felt they had every right to do this violent act. But there was nothing just about it. It was unjust, unrestrained anger and wrath. That's what Jacob says in verse 7, isn't it? He says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. He says it was, it was fierce, it was cruel, it was unjust. But they took pleasure in this act. And Jacob is so disgusted with what his sons had done that he makes a point of distancing himself from them and their wickedness and their plan. Start of verse 6 is where we see that. It says, O my soul, come not thou into their secrets, unto their assembly, mine honour, be not thou united. With these words, Jacob makes it clear that he had no part in this wicked scheme. Uh, Perhaps a simpler translation would be this. My soul shall not come into their secret counsel. My honour shall not be united to their confederacy. That's basically what he's saying here. Okay, essentially what he's saying, he's saying they hatched this plan in secret without my knowledge 
and my honour will not be attached to this act. My honour will not be tarnished because of their sin. He's basically saying, I had no part in it. I had no part of it. I had no knowledge of it. I did not approve of it. Clark writes this. He says, Jacob here removes himself from all participation in the guilt of Simeon and Levi. He most solemnly declares that he knew nothing of the confederacy by which it was executed, nor of the secret council in which it was plotted. These words mark the strong detestation which this holy man's soul felt for the villainy of his sons. See, Jacob is disgusted with what they did. Disgusted with it, and he distances himself from it. He says, I had no part in it, and I want no part of it. My honour will not be tarnished by what you did. You see, their vengeful act was not something to be praised. It was something to be cursed. And that's why in verse 7 he starts out, he says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. He says, cursed. It wasn't something to be praised. He wasn't proud of his sons and what they had accomplished. There was nothing praiseworthy about it. It was something to be cursed, renounced. It was sinful, it was wicked. Now, there is a kind of anger that is to be praised, righteous anger over sin. Now, Ephesians 4 verse 26 makes that clear. It says, be ye angry and sin not. And so it's possible to be angry and not sin. It's possible to be angry and not commit sin. And that anger is a righteous anger over sin and wickedness. And we see examples of that throughout the scriptures. I mean, Christ himself was angry. Turn over to John Chapter 2. This is Christ when he went up to the temple. He saw the state there. John chapter 2 and verse 13. Sorry, and the Jews, Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them, And that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. It's a clear example of righteous anger over sin. You know, Christ was angry. Christ saw the state of the temple and he overthrew the money changes. He grabbed the, the whip and he's chasing them out of the temple. It was righteous anger over sin. Indeed, our God is a God of anger towards sin. He hates sin. You see, there is a, a, such a thing as righteous anger over sin. It is to be commended. It is Christ-like. It is like our Lord. But what Simeon and Levi had done to the Shechemites, that was not righteous anger. That was Anger out of control, that was unrighteous vengeance. Now, God's word is very clear that vengeance belongs to him. Go to Romans 12 with me. Romans 12, verse 19. says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. God's word is very clear. Instead of giving place unto wrath, allowing it to control us, we are to to allow God to take care of it. We to give it over to him. Vengeance belongs unto the Lord. Instead of taking matters into our own hands, 
We trust it into his care. Ephesians 4 teaches the same truth. Turn over there, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. God's word's clear. Instead of allowing our temper, allowing anger to control us and seeking to get even, seeking to take vengeance, Instead, as believers, we are to respond in love and forgiveness and grace. And instead, we leave it to God, don't we? God is just, and God will deal with them accordingly in his justice. And we leave it with him, and instead we respond, as verse 32 says, with love, be kind, sorry, be kind one to another, tender heart of forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We show that same forgiveness, that same love that Christ showed to us. You know, sadly, Simeon and Levi, they didn't show love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Instead, they allowed their violent, evil nature to control them. And they committed this wicked act of violence, slaughtering the Shechemites, destroying the city in pleasure. And there was now consequences to their sin. And that brings us to our third point this morning, the consequences. Look at verse 7 again. Chapter 49, verse 7 says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, just as Reuben had to bear the consequences of his lack of moral restraints, Simeon and Levi had to bear the consequence of their violent nature. And Jacob declares at the end of verse 7, he says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Israel, And this is a, a prophetic word from the Lord. This is where we see the prophecy. Prophetic word of the Lord concerning the brothers and concerning their descendants, the tribe that would bear their name. And basically, it's a declaration that they would not be allowed to band together, but would instead be dispersed throughout the nation. They would be scattered. One commentator wrote this, They had joined together to commit this crime... And as a punishment, they should be divided or scattered in the nation of Israel and form no independent or compact tribes. And so they would be scattered. They would be dispersed rather than having their own portion of land and really being settled as a tribe within the land of Canaan. Now, although the prophecy was the same for both brothers, the fulfillment is actually different. For the tribe of Simeon, they would eventually be scattered among the nation and basically they would cease to exist as an independent tribe. You know, when they left Egypt, Simeon was the third largest tribe. It's a massive tribe, great strength. But by the time they were ready to enter the land of Canaan, 63% of the tribe had perished in the wilderness and they were now the smallest tribe of Israel. And so insignificant had they become that in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where Moses blesses each of the tribes, Simeon is not even mentioned. Simeon is completely overlooked entirely. Upon arriving in the land of Canaan, the tribe of Simeon is not given their own separate assignment of land, territory. 
Instead, they're given an inheritance within the land of Judah. Just go to Joshua chapter 19 with me. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 19. And in verse 1, it says, And the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And you drop down to verse 9. It says, Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. For the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of them. If you read the other verses in between, it lists all the cities that were given to them. Basically, they're given a group of cities. That's all they're given. And it's within Judah's territory. And so they don't receive their own territory as such. They're within the inheritance of Judah. And eventually, this means that they are effectively absorbed into the tribe of Judah. They effectively cease to exist as their own identity. Indeed, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, we won't go there, but we learn of some of the remnants of the tribe actually moving and seeking to find land outside of the land of Canaan. They sought to find places to dwell. They scattered outside the land of Canaan itself. Morris sums up their history for us. He says this, They were, effect- they were eventually either mostly assimilated by Judah or scattered outside of Israel altogether. And little is heard of them after the days of King Asa. Basically, they just fade from history. We don't hear much about them anymore. And so for Simeon, this prophecy was certainly not a blessing. You know, it was not an honorable dispersion among the nation. But for Levi, this prophecy, this same prophecy, turned into a blessing for them. You know, the Levites, as I'm sure we all know, were scattered throughout the promised land but they were scattered as the priesthood of Israel. And the reason that this prophecy was turned into a blessing for them can be traced to their actions in Exodus chapter 32. Just turn there. In Exodus 32 and verse 26... It says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and slay every man, uh, sorry, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, And they fell, the people that day, about 3,000 men. Here, of course, we have the the account of um, the wickedness of the people. They worshipped the the golden calf. They'd sinned against the Lord. And Moses asks, who's on the Lord's side? Who's going to stand with the Lord? And it's the tribe of Levi that stands up and is counted. It's the tribe of Levi who says, we're on the Lord's side. They stand with Moses. And it's ultimately this attitude, choosing the Lord's side, it's this attitude that sees them chosen as the priesthood. You know, they were still scattered among the nation. The prophecy still was fulfilled. They were scattered. They received no distinct uh, region as an inheritance within the land of Canaan. Instead, they were given 
cities all across the land, dispersed right throughout. They were still scattered, but for them this was an honourable dispersion because they were the priests of God, the priesthood. They were the, the spiritual leaders within Israel. You know, both Simeon and Levi were guilty of the same sin. They both lived by the sword. They both let their anger, their temper get the better of them. They both lashed out with violence, seeking vengeance upon the city of Shechem. They were both guilty, both guilty of mass murder. And the consequence for both was said to be the same. They would be dispersed, divided among the nation. But for Levi, it was turned into a blessing. You know what that tells us? That just highlights and reveals to us the wonderful mercy of God, does it not? The wonderful mercy of our God. As a tribe, they drew near unto God, and God responded by drawing near unto them and blessing them. They still had to live with the consequence. The prophecy didn't change, but now it was turning to a blessing, and God used them to his glory. You see, it's wonderful to know, is it not, that even when we sin, and we do sin, even when we sin and we are suffering the consequences of our sin, there is still mercy, there is still forgiveness to be found with God. It's not as if there is no way back for us. It's not as if God casts us aside and says, that's it, I'm never going to use you. I'm never going to bless you. I'm never going to help you ever again. God doesn't do that. Our God is a loving, merciful God. And if we respond by confessing our sin and drawing nigh unto God, like the Levites did, then God will draw nigh unto us and God will bless us. And he will still use us. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Now, beloved, we need to daily deal with any sin in our hearts. We need to confess it and then draw nigh unto God. We may still have to live with the consequences of our actions. Some of them never go away. But if we draw nigh unto God, he will draw nigh unto us. And God will still use us. God will still bless us. Just like he did the tribe of Levi. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you once again for the, the reminder, Lord, about how sin can uh, leave lasting consequences in our life. Lord, may you help us not to be like Simeon and Levi and uh, be violent in our nature, be controlled by our temper, by our anger. But help us, Lord, instead to give uh, place unto you and let you deal with people. Help us instead to be forgiving and loving and gracious and merciful. And Lord, I pray you help us also remember, Lord, that when we do sin, when we do fail, that, Lord, you don't cast us aside. Well, there may be consequences to our action, but, Lord, you are still loving, merciful, forgiving God. And, Lord, you are still able to use us to your glory. May we draw nigh unto you. And, Lord, we thank you that as we do, you draw nigh unto us. Well, may you bless now as we close, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.